This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Because we did get the Fed minutes from that March 20th meeting. As you know, we've been talking about them. Let's uh, get some more analysis. Uh, Putri Pasquale is managing director and partner at PEMCO. That's the Pacific Alternative Asset Management. Uh, joining us on the phone from Irvine, California. Putri, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. Hey, tell us a little bit about um, what you think is the most important uh, I don't know, thoughts, statements that we got from those uh, Fed minutes just released. Hi, pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So a couple things. Um, the, the minutes don't really uh, show us anything that's, you know, out of expectation. And the market has actually been much expecting the Fed to be much more dovish than um, what the minutes say. And if you look at the equity market performance this year, as well as the bond market strong performance, um, it reflects uh, the expectation that the market actually is seeing the probability of a rate cut more than a rate hike um, increasing, you know, mm. sometime by June. So, so that's, that's something that's quite different uh, from the expectation of a hawkish Fed, you know, as, as early as uh, at the end of last year. And – how surprised are you by that? Because, you know, time moves, you know, faster than we all uh, think about. But it was not that long ago that we were talking about a pretty steady diet of rate hikes. I mean, it's just amazing. Right, right. And um, one of the phrases in the Fed's minute that I think it's very telling is the phrase roughly balanced. And that's the way they are describing the upside and the downside risk to the economy. Um, and to me, if you read that in plain English, that means that there are so many conflicting signs um, that they are waiting, that the Fed is waiting to see better clarity, both on the economic basis and, my sense, also from markets to before they, they make a more decisive action um, whether to reverse that rate hike into a rate cut. Uh, that being said, though, the fact that the market is expecting a rate cut, um, I it's think nuts. some investors <laughs> might be in for a surprise. Well, you know, how are we supposed to read this Fed? And I understand um, Mr. Powell, smart man, no doubt about it, successful, but came from a different background. So right. do we say kind of what happened from December until the beginning of this year, that it was just a learning curve or is it a different type of Fed or I don't know, how do you read it as an investor to say, wow, could I get another 180 turn? <laughs> no, I'm serious, right? Like, how do you read it? Right. Uh, what's more difficult um, this time around compared to, let's say, you know, for, for Chairman Powell compared to Janet Yellen's, uh, you know, years is the fact that we are further away from the crisis and we are later in the cycle. Um, so I think his job is a lot harder. 
Uh, So part of it is is that, that the environment is just more difficult for him. And the Fed has a dual mandate of, you know, uh, know, employment and inflation control. But market participants are aware, and I think the Fed is aware, that they have the third mandate that, you know, nobody sort of – talked about, or at least they can, the Fed cannot acknowledge publicly, is that they can't be seen or they can't actually, um, you know, be blamed for damaging the, the economy or damaging the stock market. Right. Um, you know, sometimes the two are different, but, you know, for a lot of people, those two are one and the very same. So given what's been going on, the fact that growth in the U.S. is positive, but it is slowing down, um, the fact that... Uh, last year, we were talking about, you know, um, global growth, and that's, you know, kind of uh, a global growth that synced up on a, everybody's growing. And the discussion now on global growth is the other way, is that it's, it's synced up, but it's synced up in a slowing way. And so that's a very different background and a much more difficult background. And the last one is talking about inflation. So uh, based on, you know, Vice Chairman Clarita's uh, discussion uh, last night, he was pretty dovish. He talks about there's, it is possible that we are going to see uh, a drop in unemployment without an increase in inflation. So I think that's, that's true, technically speaking. However, there's also a sense that, you know, inflation, because the Fed watches PCE, that that's not the right metric to, to watch because when it comes to risk assets or the stock market in particular, um, the story of margin compression, and this is something that the market has yet to appreciate, may be a bigger headwind than you expect. And, and I can talk a little bit more about that. So, for example, um, PCE measures you know the, the cost of uh, goods and services, um, but that, that is a separate measure. So that may remain muted. Um, however, what we are starting to see is wage inflation pressures. So, for example, uh, we are hearing that hiring managers are finding difficulty hiring, or rather, they are not able to hire at the wages that they are willing to pay. So one possible scenario is a situation where wage inflation goes up, but the overall prices of goods and services are stagnant. So this means businesses will be unable to pass on their higher cost of wages to the right. consumers. So that's that's yeah. very negative for the equity market. Right. And we will start to see that play out, certainly, uh, in this earnings season. Uh, Putri Pasquale, thank you so much. Really appreciate getting some time for you on uh, from you on this Wednesday. Managing Director and Partner at Pacific Alternative Asset Management, PAMCO, uh, on the phone from Irvine, California. Well, and meanwhile, you know, there's a lot of politics around the Fed right now because you've got these two potential nominees, uh, Herman Cain being the one who is in the headlines today with a couple of GOP senators already withdrawing support there. So the politics continue in and around uh, the Federal Reserve and the Trump administration. Not straightforward, that's for sure. Bloomberg Business Week on this Wednesday, and this is Bloomberg. Just like money in the pocket, baby love. All right, it's must-see TV if you're a Bloomberg kind of person. All those big bank CEOs down on Capitol Hill 
facing a very different Congress from maybe they would have what they would have seen a couple years ago. House controlled and Maxine Waters cameras, right? That's right. Don't you remember? Like there would be like a million cameras in front of these guys. Absolutely. And here they are uh, testifying before Maxine Waters committee. Michelle Davis, finance reporter. She covers J.P. Morgan. She watches all the big banks along with the finance team here in New York. And they've been watching this very closely. A great top live blog that Carol and I have been watching very closely. So, Michelle, what jumps out at you? They've been a a lot of talking (laughs) and a a lot of questions, a lot of answers. What jumps out to you? Probably the first thing, and maybe this is a biased observation because I do cover J.P. Morgan, but the first thing I observe is that, you know, starting off the day, Maxine Waters made it clear that she she didn't want Jamie Dimon to be dominating the floor. You know, he's very outspoken. He has lots of opinions. There was a story that circulated before, you know, the hearing that said, uh, the other bank CEOs were going to rely, you know, lean on him to take up a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, she said, don't do that. You guys all have opinions, but for the last two hours, it really has been the diamond show. We're seeing questions targeted directly to him and then, you know, not then asked to other CEOs. Whereas in the first three hours, it was more rapid fire, you know, answer yes or no, each of the banks, you know, that sort of thing. So. To be fair, he was there 10 years ago. Right. So if you're looking for perspective about, you know, like him or not. That's a great point. Right? If you're looking for someone to say, you know what it was like then. How is How does the system, how are they working now? Are we, you know, in a better situation uh, than we were uh, 10 years ago? He's the perfect person to ask. No, yeah, that's completely valid. And I think in prepping for this, you know, he was well aware of that. And, and I frankly, I think he likes being, you know, the person who's out there who who has lived through this and who who learned things and was able to still steer his bank to become number one yeah i think we also know from watching him for many years now like jamie diamond sometimes like just likes to fight a little bit like you know he gets a little feisty and we're seeing that literally right now uh, on our screens i mean I, i'm looking up at the at the bloomberg television and you see jamie you know gesticulating back uh back and forth to an answer and you know it makes if you're programming this and and the uh, and the House members certainly know that they're more likely to get a sharp answer and something that'll end up on a uh, on a TV show and a clip later if they're asking Jamie Dimon versus say a Brian Moynihan or, or maybe a James Gorman. Exactly, it it plays into the you know if some people on the committee wanted theatrics from yes. this uh, in order to you know keep the narrative focused on banks being too big it. He is definitely someone who can help with that. Um, yeah. So I am curious, you know, what's different with something like a J.P. Morgan than where we were 10 years ago? Well, they're what, well, well more capitalized. And, uh, you know, I think regulators, uh, there are a lot more regulators looking at them. Uh, they also, you know, have uh, – the past and the lessons they learned from that. So that's what's different. You know, hindsight, 2020. But the capital's a key one, right? So that if they get into trouble, they're not necessarily going to have to tap into the federal government, right? Right. And, uh, you know, Gorman, I think, today even praised the Volcker rule, saying that changes like that actually have helped them and have, you know, eliminated the risk that they're they're doing anything that could could hurt them. All right. Before we let you go, let's not lose sight of the fact that we got seven white dudes, you know, sitting up there 
once again. It sounds like that came up as a question uh, along the day, right? Yeah, Representative Al Green uh, made the observation that, you know, it was seven white males looking up at him, and he asked them to... I believe that's dudes, okay? Just make sure. <laughs> bros. Guys, bros, <laughs> homies. He asked them to, you know, raise their hands if, if, if they thought that it's likely that the CEOs of their... Uh, that the they would have female or you know minority CEOs in ten years, and and everyone raised raised their hands except for Gorman and uh, and Diamond. Which you know, to be fair, a lot of this has been rhetor- a lot of the questions they've gotten have been rhetorical. Right. Sometimes it's hard to hear, so yeah. I wouldn't necessarily speculate something from that, but it is. Well, especially given, in J.P. Morgan's case specifically, that there are two women who have been pegged as potential successors, Marianne Lake and Mary, Mary Otis, Otis, right? exactly, yeah. yeah. That's Michelle Davis. She is a finance reporter. She primarily covers J.P. Morgan, part of our rock star finance team here so in New York City. Ten years ago, there weren't any women CEOs either, were there? No, there were not, Just Carol. saying, yeah, just saying. No. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I feel like I just read a treatment for a movie. Um, I'm just going to tell our reporter here that uh, George Clooney is definitely interested. It is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg Today. It's the cover story, the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine on newsstands tomorrow. It's also on the Bloomberg and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. It's about two Dominican families, their lawyer, a quest for family riches. Not my words, but they are the words of Joe Nacera, who wrote it. He's columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. It really does read like it should be a movie. What is From this? your lips to God's ears. <laughs> That's all I can say. Or at least Netflix. First of all, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Netflix is calling. So tell us about your story. Well, uh, where do we begin? Let's begin at the beginning. I, I got to know a guy in his 40s who claimed, who was a Dominican living in New York, who claimed that five generations ago, his ancestor had taken gold from the DR. There is a big gold mine in the DR and taken it to Spain and given some to the king and put the rest in the bank. And five generations later, the family had never gotten the money, but they were convinced, convinced, convinced it existed. It was real. And it wasn't just this one guy saying this. The whole family was saying it, the Guzman family. And then when I went to the DR, I discovered there was another much larger family that believed the same thing. And there was actually some intermarriage between the two families. So... <laughs> so then what happened, you say? Well, so so yeah. th- then I got to know. So basically what happened is these two families had this belief, and this lawyer comes along, and he says, hey, guess what? I found it. I know where it is. It's in Credit Suisse, and it's in Bank Santadar, and a few other places, and, and I, I, have, I have the key. If you sign up with me, I will get you the money. So they go on this genealogical search to prove that they're related, yada, yada. He makes a bunch of trips to Europe. um, And uh, he has 25,000 clients. And that's a really big key to this whole story. That's right. So uh, what I was thinking at first is, if this is a scam, what is its purpose? Why would a guy... You know, he's going to get 30%. Well, in the U.S., if a plaintiff's lawyer is going to get 30%, you know, he gets his money at the end. Right. And he puts up all the cash. It's got to be real. Right. So I thought, well, you know, if he's, I didn't understand what the scam was if it was a scam. And then I had lunch with somebody who said, oh, um, I had to pay 200 bucks 
to have him, you know, quote unquote, process my documents. And the light bulb goes on. Oh, okay, 200 times 25,000. Ah, now you start to understand what's going on. There's some real money there yeah. for the lawyer. Right. <laughs> so, um, but he still insisted it was real. And I, I went to Madrid with them and I went to Zurich with them, all on Mike Bloomberg's dime, <laughs> I might add. And um, uh, discovered that they never once went to the bank. They never had any meetings with any bankers. They basically uh, were tourists for 10 days. And, and what I love about this story, Joe, is that obviously this is a story about gold. It's a story about family. It's also a story, obviously, about hope. Um, yeah. And interestingly, it's a story about modern technology in a lot of ways and how that can sort of go viral in an entirely different way. Right. So you're used to hearing, you know, Facebook does this in Egypt and this in Thailand and so on. But this is a little different. Basically, in many developing countries like the Dominican Republic, the, 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 the app of choice is WhatsApp. Everybody uses WhatsApp. They use it to communicate with each other, but they also use it to form groups. So basically, you had these groups, these families in these groups, very large groups, and they would communicate emotionally to each other. Mm. Oh, we're going to get the money tomorrow. Oh, no, it's not coming. What are we going to do? I quit my job. I need this inheritance. You know, I have cancer. I want this money before I die. I mean, there was a lot of stuff like that. Emotional highs and emotional lows. And it was, I was, it was almost like I was... I was watching it happen in real time. I wasn't, I wasn't tracking it after the fact. It was happening in real time. So I was watching, reading people's emotional highs and lows. And I have to tell you, some of it was just heartbreaking. So I'm, yeah. Uh, so first of all, what does WhatsApp say? Oh, I didn't ask what. That, what's that? They're owned by Facebook. There's, there's no point. Okay, okay. But, but what it ultimately says is this is how people are communicating, and this really was your window in. I feel totally. like you didn't fo- – you couldn't – none of us could have fully understood this story until you That's got right. into that. I mean I, I met in person probably 30 members of the family. That's a lot, yeah. all things considered. I went to f- the DR four times, and I met this lawyer and his you know, buddies, team. But it was WhatsApp where I really got the feel of what was going on. Right. And also, sorry, they are – I mean this is how the family is taking this minute to minute as you say. And every new little piece of news spreads like wildfire and you have people making decisions on the fly in real time as you say based on some little nugget of information which may or may not be true. So one thing – I'm not even sure it made in the story. There was one moment where – the cops came and took the lawyer to a meeting at the central bank. The central bank was furious because he had said that the money resided in the central bank. And so they take him, you know, and, and immediately, the, people don't know what the cops are doing. Immediately the word goes out, the police has arrested him. The police have arrested him. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's the end. It's the end. And then he comes back two hours later. He says, ah, nothing's happened. Uh, cheering, cheering, cheering. What actually happened was the central bank told him, you know, do not say we are associated with this in any way whatsoever and the next day he does a whatsapp a whatsapp video and he says you know it's not at the central bank is it possible that there is money somewhere no okay here's the reason um what is possible what is extremely plausible is that these guys the ancestors were merchants and they did own ships it's completely plausible and, and one of them owned the gold mine so it's completely plausible that they had gold and they took it to Spain. 
but it was so long ago that that money there's no account it would be in. It would have been absorbed inside the bank. I did t- talk to some people who were experts on this, and they basically said anything before 1925, you know, you can just forget about it. And if you did the compound interest, <laughs> if you did the compound interest, I mean, it's basically the GDP of the United States. Right. So it, it really, you know, it can't exist. Right. And yet there are still people hanging on. They're pursuing L- it, right? Lots of them. Lots of them. And that's what, to did me, you talk to these people? The Absolutely. And I did you tell them, them that it's probably? I guess. And, and, and including my main guy that I followed. And, and, the initial phone call. The guy yeah, with the initial the, phone call. The guy with the initial phone call. And he said, I have to see this to the end. Uh, there's, a, there's a little tiny thing in the story about another con, Sir Francis Drake. This is, this is kind of old. But there was a, a legendary con man who, who convinced 70,000 people that uh, if they paid him a little money, he was fighting with the British government to get his hands on St. Fr- Sir Francis Drake's enormous inheritance. And basically, when he got arrested, they put up his bail. That's how much they believed. <laughs> so it can happen. You have to read this story. Like, it's just that simple. Like, you. sit down, read it, enjoy it over the weekend. It's a tale as old as time, and yet... So new and so fresh. Joe Nocera, such a treat to catch up with you. Catch it's a conversation a I also had with Joe on TV and radio this weekend. All right. Well, more and more people, as you know, getting into Ubers and Lyfts these days. And yeah. that's part of why everyone seems so excited that they're going public. Uh Lyft is out. Investors have been a little bit mixed about that. Uber said to seek about $10 billion. That would be the year's biggest IPO. So what does it all mean? We turn to the man who knows all. John Ehrlichman, anchor, BNN Bloomberg's The Open, also a correspondent for CTV National News. All right, Johnny. So how's this going to go for Uber, given what we've seen with Lyft? Well, first of all, thank you for making my day, Jason, with Billy Ocean. Um, Anytime. To, to That's all Paul Brennan. You know what? He <laughs> he knows you. He knows you. Are you dancing, um, John, on that one? Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I guess I'll be dancing with some of those uh, uh, Uber insiders who are, who are, who are participating in the IPO. I, look, I think that, I think that the, uh, the Uber anticipation is palpable. I think that we've talked about these high-flying unicorn IPOs, and we lump Lyft and Pinterest in with Uber. But let's face it, Uber is the one that everybody wanted to, to know about. The, the fact that we've you know, heard estimates of at least $100 billion as a valuation. So we're talking about something that you don't see for a company too frequently on Wall Street. You think of the Facebook IPO at about $100 billion as well. And I think it really is it, – it, it is – IPOs are an opportunity to have a, an exciting conversation around a company that started just an idea. There was so much friction towards getting this idea implemented in the first place. So it's a great history lesson for business. But at the same time, for a company that lost $1.8 billion last year, I think everyone is really curious to see what the public market reception is to, to a money-losing business like this. I agree. Because you know what strikes me, John, and I felt this way even with Lyft, these are IPOs or these are companies, startups, unicorns, what ha- you know, whatever you want to call them, that were able to stay around for a while because there was so much private money uh, out there seeking investment. So you know, here they are how many years in and still unprofitable. And I do wonder as we get to peak more inside 
inside, you know, their financial pages, you know, how people are going to ultimately feel once they get uh, a look at all of that. And I think, you know, it's funny, like, I've heard two terms, you guys can tell me if you've heard this too, over the last couple of weeks about the IPO pricing, and we're starting to get sniffs of this with Uber as well, coming in a little bit lower than what people thought it might be. Some have called it off-peak pricing. Some have <laughs> oh. called it an, an, an undercorn. I mean, whatever you want to call it, almost like having like a 10% discount at the department store to, to try to justify the fact that, you know, this is a money-losing business and, and maybe we have to be a little cautious on the valuation. I just don't think we can get those answers, candidly, right now. Yeah. We're going to have to see in three or four years. And, I mean, dare I say, do Lyft and Uber team up do they come together do they do they battle each other over the next few years and then have this well dot 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 kind of moment it's so early but it you know but there are three million plus uber drivers around the world i feel this is more of a connected society story than like the iphone you get into the car you start sharing short st- stories with these drivers about you know how they became users of uber it really has been transformational from that perspective yeah, absolutely. And it's also, I think, worthwhile to think about, John, and, and you look across the whole tech sector and many other sectors, but uh, your speciality, as it were, is is tech. And, you know, you saw a lot of this boom when you were uh, out on the West Coast with Bloomberg. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are a lot of these companies beyond just these two. You think about Pinterest, you think about Slack, who are sort of coming of age and, and you wonder, and I'm going to use your term, like, are they ultimately under corns as well? Yeah, um, it, it, it's a great question. The, the one thing that really stands out about about Uber for me, um, I, I was in San Francisco as it was first starting to take off. Um, I think New Yorkers, for example, might take for granted that amazing taxi system uh, that, yes. that, that for so it's many great years point. fueled the city. Um, San Francisco, I mean, you want to get a cab driver to take you over the Bay Bridge or the Golden Gate Bridge at like four in the afternoon, good luck. There, There was... Uh, an opportunity in that market, it was ripe for disruption with technology. So I think from that perspective, um, inevitably, the consumer wins. Um, And, you know, we see that with Spotify. We see it with Netflix, which then pressures Disney to to go over the top. And that's going to be another big theme today. Wherever there is an opportunity to disrupt and make a consumer's life better, I think you'll continue to see that. Whether or not the valuations are justified, I think we only know with time if people keep using these products. And and that, that'll be the fascinating thing to watch with, with both Uber and Lyft over the next couple of years. Right. And whether or not they're sustainable businesses in the long term. I'm just going to tell you, I think Lyft is down almost about 15% from its right. IPO. So we've certainly seen investors pull back some of their enthusiasm. John Ehrlichman, thank you, thank you. Anchor at BNN Bloomberg's The Open. He's also correspondent for CTV National News, watching tech as he has for many years on the phone from Toronto. I love that guy. I know. What's so not smart. to love? Yeah. And he likes Billy Ocean, so that's And he likes Billy Ocean. Uh, I also like how he pivoted effortlessly to dancing with the Uber shareholders, you know, the Uber insiders. <laughs> he just didn't want to tell me if he was dancing. Yeah, I exactly. think he was. That's true. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. You drive. 
Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. We've just got mm, about 11 minutes left in the trading session. JJ Kinahan is chief market strategist at TD Ameritrade. $1.3 trillion in assets under management. Joining us uh, back with us from Chicago. JJ, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. So I feel like we're a TikTok a little bit, uh, just kind of waiting for the flow of earnings to get a better feel on where things are in terms of the corporate environment. We've heard from the Fed today. We got the Fed minutes. Um, how do you see uh, the environment right now? Well, I think you hit it right out of head, Carl. You know, we got the Fed and ECB out of the way. And I think, as expected, the Fed didn't really tell us anything because if you look at probabilities, there's not a high probability of anything changing over the next six months. And, and they said themselves they could go either way. So all that said, we do look to earnings starting on Friday, starting with one of the more interesting areas of the market right now, and that being the financials, who seem to have everything sort of working against them over over the last few months, you know, rates lower, uh, those that have big international businesses, a slowdown in terms of Europe, a slowdown in terms of Asia, a slowdown here in the U.S. So uh, all those playing into uh, the factor of what comes out. And I think the one other thing to keep an eye on is people throw financials and, and every sector into the same bucket. You have to remember, some of these things have a bigger impact than others. For instance, we have Wells Fargo coming out, you know, and J.P. Morgan. Lower rates actually have less of an impact theoretically on Wells Fargo because they have such a big domestic mortgage business, mm-hmm. whereas lower rates in some of the other banks and, and trading slowdown in, may affect them much more significantly. Right. And so when you think about those other aspects that may be affecting the market, I, Carol and I both keep asking smart folks like you, where does trade come in? Where does this tariff conversation come in? Because more headlines today, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, essentially coming out and saying, look, we're working on it. Full steam ahead with China. But I feel like we've been hearing about this for a long time. March 1 obviously has come and gone in terms of that initial deadline that we saw for U.S. and China. So for a guy like you who's got to think about the whole world and has also got to think about where to put money, how does that play into your thesis? Yeah, you know what I think it really does. Again, the financials. I think it's going to come down to that the the statement of the CEOs. Yeah. I feel like they've been beaten up pretty significantly over the last few weeks. So uh, I'm not as afraid, so to speak, going into them. The, the the area that I think has many of us scratching our head is going to be technology, and probably more specifically for me, chips, because you know w- when you think about. The slowdown. What is the, and, and and this, as you just mentioned, the tariff situation continuing to kick the can. Uh, that slows down companies' desire to spend on infrastructure. And I think many people often forget that technology is probably the biggest piece of infrastructure right now. So does it mean for chip makers that not only do you have companies perhaps delaying spending money, I think it's one of the reasons that you've seen so many stock buybacks is the companies have money and don't necessarily want to build new plants or invest in infrastructure. So with that, the chip makers, you have that factor and you have a slow uh, the slowdown, but you also have a, a little bit of a gaming perhaps slowdown or gamers, which is a big part of their market, hmm. uh, going elsewhere 
to, in other words, if I'm a gamer in Europe, do I buy this domestically? If I'm a gamer in Asia, do I buy my chip domestically? May not do all the same things, but I'm going to save a heck of a lot of money by doing so. So there are quite a few factors that actually worry me on that end of technology. We know that companies are going to spend some money because you have to keep up to a certain level, but the expansion and the desire to really have the latest and greatest is kind of what worries me going forward. So, you know, you talked about the chips. So I'm looking at the socks is up 38% since mm-hmm. uh, Christmas Eve, right? Yeah. And it's up about 28% this year. So a lot of enthusiasm built into that index already so that if those names don't deliver, then we're going to have some problems. I, I think you're hitting right on exactly what I'm looking at. And, and, and what, what scares me a little bit is, you know, if you uh, here's an earnings season. Also, I think we have really low expectations, right? I don't think anybody's out saying this is going to be a great earnings. Dave season. Wilson was just talking about was it down about ten percent or something yeah. in terms of expectations yeah. have been brought down in the quarter. Exactly. So we have low expectations. So I don't think that you're going to be handsomely rewarded by beating expectations. It's like uh, meet the Falkers and get the ninth place ribbon for participation. You know, it's like, hey, good for you. You beat low expectations. JJ, you just just won the day. Like, I I feel like we just need to end the broadcast right now. You got to meet the Fockers reference, and like you win, you win. Like I don't even know what to say. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to drop we're the done. mic. Good we're talking, done. guys. Let's, let's, let's close the markets. We are yeah, done. Yeah, we're done. Um, but, 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 but my point being, if you miss earnings, you are gonna get, in my opinion, pounded more than normal. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, well, I mean, let's talk about some names that are, that have obviously had a tough go of it. I mean, one that is obviously, I think, close to home there for you, at, at least geographically uh boeing you know obviously you know some uh some troubles continuing there uh you know what do you make of that sector because that obviously is a very specific situation but industrials in general uh you know not a great time no it's been a tough time for industrials in general going back to the 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 general discussion we just had about tariffs etc there's just a lot of fear there but the other area that I, I you know i think when i think boeing i also think of the airlines immediately and i'm pretty amazed at how well the I- individual names in the airlines have been able to hold up throughout this uh whole sort of crisis with boeing you know i know american talked about the fact yesterday that they thought it would affect their earning their earnings uh not hugely but they did lower their higher end of their target going into this quarter which was already low and now we have crude oil prices starting to rise. So that's actually the airline industry itself uh, attached to Boeing, attached to rising crude, is one that I'm also scratching my head about and very interested to hear what their CEOs have to say about going forward. If you think about if we continue with this kick-the-can mentality and a slowing of business in Asia and Europe, it may be a tougher time for them in, in, in the second half of 2019. All right. Thank you so much, JJ. Thank you so much, JJ Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade, $1.3 trillion in assets under management on the phone from Chicago. Fockers. Well, I, like, meet the Fockers. Well, <laughs> that one, is one not of our producers, what I, I our, one of our uh, great producers, Charlie Volmer, just sent me a note and said, But can you milk a cat? That's a great <laughs> Meet the Parents <laughs> reference. So. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.